Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We do this every day. I'm Pat Mulroy, the supervisor of the World of Learning Institute. The World of Learning Institute provides virtual world language instruction and other courses like calculus and chemistry when it's difficult for a school or district to find a teacher. We're here to talk to you about what you what we do every day that makes virtual learning authentic, relevant, and engaging. And you can contact me at P-M-U-L-R-O-Y at worldoflearninginstitute.com for more information. Very excited because today we have a former virtual learning facilitator and virtual learning assistant all in one, Fiona Grogan. And um, in her role now as a university educator, um, she got to see a lot in her position supporting high school students as well as teaching high school students. And I would love to hear from her about some of the things she thinks would help students successfully transition to college or the workforce. And I want to just give her a round of applause. She's getting close to the finish line or PhD. So I'm looking forward to hearing all about that today. Um, so if you want to give us, give us a little um, introduction and tell us about who you are and, you know, your role at the University of Arizona. Hi, Pat. Thanks so much for having this conversation with me today. I'm really glad to be able to touch base again after we've been apart for some time. Um, so uh, since I've, I was working actively with World of Learning, um, I transitioned to a slightly different role at the university. I've been in higher education space for um, almost 10 years. I'm coming up on the end of my 10th school year. Um, and in that time, I've mostly been in the international education space, working with international students in all different degree levels. Um, in the past year and a half, though, I have been working more on uh, moving away from some of the immigration issues that students experience or the related academic issues and towards the engagement piece. Um, and so part, a big piece of that, in fact, one of the top three things that I'm working on is workforce development. And so I'm thinking a lot with this very specific group of students about what types of things are expected by employers and what opportunities are available for them. Um, this role actually came out, we had conducted a big survey with all of our students here who are international students. It's about 4,000 overall, give or take. And part of what we were looking at is what are the most significant challenges and what support exists to help overcome those challenges. And um, we realized that there are services on campus with our colleagues who know what they're doing and they're very skilled and that perhaps they're not as savvy on working with specific populations um, like first-generation students or international students. And there's a lot of crossover in those populations. And so in some ways, I see myself as like a fairy godparent for this population of students is like, okay, here are the issues and what are some ways that we as a campus community can do a better job of supporting them? Because I think if we look at trends in higher education overall, um, historically, it's been for continuing generation students um, from a very specific cultural background. And our education pedagogy has not shifted so significantly to meet the needs of all these new types of students, um, more black and brown students who are coming into higher education and more first generation students and increasing numbers of international students. And so then I think those of us who work in these support services 
are scrambling to find ways to try and fit you know, the square peg in the round hole of these really talented students who maybe just have a different set of experiences that they bring to the table. Um, so that's been my big project as of late. And it's also the focus of my dissertation work. Um, I'm a disabled person. I have a hearing impairment. And um, I've always felt a little bit like a square peg in a round hole in the higher education environment. And so I feel like a lot of my experiences are, are generalizable to other, um, to the experiences of other marginalized populations. And so I'm looking at some of the ways that we can eliminate, um, identify, and then eliminate the barriers um, that prevent certain students from being as successful as they might otherwise be. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. And, you know, when you think about surveys, sometimes you don't get, you know, you don't think about, you know, who you get, but you know, oftentimes with whatever feedback you get, you're able to just kind of see some of that incongruence in like what you think you're doing versus what the, the students really actually need. So, you know, even in a small population of students who might respond, and I don't know if your surveys go that way, but ours, we don't ever tend to get all of the students answering. But I feel like, you know, even like if we just look at the most dissatisfied students in our survey, you, we get, we know that if there's two or three students struggling, that there's probably more who either weren't vocal or didn't answer those surveys. And Olivia has been really good at doing that. And most of you know Olivia, who listen to our podcast regularly, but Olivia, for those folks who are new to the world learning, um, we do this everyday podcast. Why don't you just give them a little bit of an overview and tell them what you've been up to these days? Thanks, Pat. It's exciting for me to be on here with Fiona. And um, it's really neat to hear you share um, your work, Fiona, in that kind of elevator speech fashion that always sort of essentializes like what's really at the core of this. So um, my title at the World of Learning is, of course, a virtual learning specialist. And in that capacity to make some connections with what you shared, Fiona, one of the kind of questions that I've pursued or invitations that I've pursued is around accessibility and navigation in the virtual space. And so sometimes that's very concrete. You know, I attended a series of workshops this past year on universal design and education and looked at our courses through that lens. Did we already have elements of universal design built into the course themselves? And where are there um, continuing barriers that we have yet to take down? And that's like, that's always an ongoing question because you have to continue to see things through new eyes, right? So you can look through the course through the lens of someone with a hearing impairment, look through the course with the lens of someone with a visual impairment. Um, and each time you're going to find different barriers or different pieces that are there, right? Um, you also acknowledged, you know, issues of identity and background and experience. And so we have a typical student, just like University of Arizona probably has a typical student, and we, you know, may or may not know what that typical student's experience looks like. But then like Pat says, and one of the ways in which I think Pat has led us in this way is if there's one student who's struggling, like we may get 99% satisfaction on something, but then we're not, but for that one student, that's 100% of their life. They are 100% of themselves, right? So um, that's something we've done with some really concrete steps. Some are as simple as, you know, putting the visual descriptions and alternative text on images. That's like really concrete and you can, it's a lot of work. It's a little bit tedious, but you can feel satisfied and accomplished and kind of check that off. And then there's a lot more nuance, nuanced stuff. Like I was just at a conference last week and they were talking about the limitations of an LMS in general. 
and how an LMS, you know, is designed by a certain type of learner for a certain type of learner. And so even if you're just even just operating with the within an LMS, a learning management system, period, is already a cultural. And I'm, I'm thinking about your experience, Fiona, with international students. It's already there are certain cultural norms and assumptions that are built into the very design of the platform. And we may not have the liberty to override that, but to acknowledge it and talk about it and find alternative points of connection and access, that, that was a whole new kind of, you know, much more abstract, but also much more powerful angle to that accessibility work uh, that I had not previously considered. Yeah. Well, you know, and it is really interesting because every time you get in a room with people who are good at what they do, which Olivia, we were at the same conference, it's like, you know, you just have that one more crack, you know, and, and these conversations help too, like talking to both of you and it's like, okay, now I have all these things like just kind of swirling around in my brain, like, all right, you know, what is it, what is the next important thing that we tackle? Um, and Fiona, you worked in both roles where you were actually working, you know, delivering direct instruction, you know, via Zoom, and also as an instructional assistant who was like trying to help kids get through the course and really, um, you know, you got to look behind the scenes. So um, I think from that perspective, um, you know, can you think about some of the things that worked and some of the things that in your experience now, knowing what people are looking for, for students to be successful in college, what are the things that worked? In a little while, we'll talk a little bit more about what didn't work and what other things we might be able to um, do to help students successfully transition into the workforce and, and you know, post-secondary education. Yeah, I think um, there are such strong parallels between what World of Learning is doing and what's happening right now in higher education in general. Um, so, you know, through the pandemic and, you know, about this time in 2020, as higher education institutions that are brick and mortar that use the online space a lot, we were suddenly faced with the challenge of how to take everything online in about a week. Um, including professors who didn't know how to do that, who've been teaching for 40 years, and students who came from all types of educational backgrounds and maybe didn't have access to the technology required. Um, so one area where I see World of Learning students having a leg up in general is that they've had this really supportive and guided experience in engaging in an online space. Because what we're seeing now sort of quote unquote coming out of the pandemic in higher education is that our learning spaces, even the ones that are nominally back in person, is that they are still functioning so much more online than they did even just a couple of years ago. Um, and so we see certain populations of students who maybe don't have access to the right technology. Um, not having a laptop is a problem. Um, and um, who don't have that robust experience online are struggling with that transition. Um, so when I, I felt like when I was um, an instructor with World of Learning, the students who found ways to engage with the um, concurrent elements of the curriculum, you know, coming to my office hours, making appointments and coming to class, um, even if the material was difficult, um, and it seems pretty intuitive, but that's where the community building was happening, um, even if they weren't turning their cameras on, um, which was something I struggled with coming from the context that I'm in, but it's so common with online classes. 
um, that even just finding different ways to engage the different modalities, the chats and the discussions, um, I think is such an effective way to teach a relevant skill set in the world that we're operating in right now. Um, and then the work that I did behind the scenes um, was interesting because I was able to really connect and reach out to students who weren't meeting the goals that they needed to meet um, to be able to complete the course uh, on time. And I developed a special relationship with a couple of students who um, had connected with the instructor, but uh, were not on track to complete the course. And so we were meeting one-on-one -on -one, um, with cameras on for the most part because they were one-on-one -on -one meeting. And looking at what was the most essential, uh, what were the most essential elements of the course and um, how to move along. And so um, a, a theme that I can draw out of those experiences is that it was a meaningful and valuable experience for the students who were able to connect and were able to reach out, even if they were struggling with the material. So that I think is what makes the online space worth it and what makes it function is if we're connecting with the people around us, with our instructors, with other students, um, even if the material is difficult, even if the online space is unfamiliar or technology is unreliable. Um, and so I feel like students who already have some element of those experiences in their arsenal are so much more prepared to, to function in that space. And it's a space that's just exploding everywhere else outside of world of learning. Can I ask a follow-up question, Fiona? Um, with your, maybe this is where you were going to head to, Pat, with your, um, you see freshmen, I imagine, especially when you were doing the immigration work, you probably saw students right as they were first coming to campus or even before they got there. And, and you have this special population that you're seeing mostly international students, but what's the general field seem like? Are there, like, do you, what, percentage or just a general sense of like who's coming to college with that experience who has it extensively who doesn't have it at all tell us what it's like since we're not we're not we don't get to be there I mean I think our students in general who are coming in as freshmen uh, are experienced with navigating online in a lot of ways more experienced than we are um, where the issue comes and you mentioned earlier Olivia about the design of spaces and for whom it is designed. And that's where we're seeing a lot of our students struggle unless they already have had access to some westernized education. Maybe that was high school in the United States or maybe that was um, like an IB program. Those students seem fairly well set up to succeed. Um, our other students, even the very, very online ones, uh, I've seen have something of a learning curve with adjusting to the online spaces that we've created for them. Um, and there's some standardization. And so I think, you know, once you get past that adjustment, mm -hmm. you know, going to your other courses is a little bit easier, but also just navigating, okay, this class is using it this way and this class is using it this way. And then we're also have all these plugins to the main platform, um, just figuring out, you know, through reading through the sheer volume of instructions and figuring out how to use that, I think is a really significant um, learning curve for specific parts of our population. Um, and I think in particular, those who are first generation um, or first generation in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's maybe listeners of our podcast or anyone who works with us knows that a really big push for the, in the last year and a half for us has been standardizing navigation and standardizing our homepage. 
And we've just found that relatively simple act of giving every course the same front door, right? The same entry point. Like you said, it may initially still have that learning curve, but that once students learn it, that they can be successful moving from one course to the next or two friends who are both enrolled in courses can answer each other's questions. It kind of creates like a universal language for everybody who's in the courses. Yeah, and this is this is a little premature, um, but I'll mention it anyway, um, because this is such an issue that even having that initial struggle plus the language potentially, mm-hmm. plus just adjusting to college, um, sometimes can cause such a delay in getting things really going for our freshman students that it can lead to academic struggles like academic probation. Mm-hmm. And so um, a project I'm working on to address this is a one credit course, a student success course for our incoming students. And we would like to focus an entire module on mm-hmm. what's the technology that we're using here on campus. Mm-hmm. How can we make you comfortable with it? So this is not a barrier going forward. Um, which is, to me, it feels like a little bit, okay, we created the barrier, now we're finding a way to go around it. Um, but I'm, I'm working with the tools that I have to try and help the students I work with. Right. Yeah. What are you thinking about, Pat? Thinking about unmuting, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I wonder when I, when I think about, you know, some of the students, we talk about those students who struggle in the virtual environment. And I'm going to make an assumption that most of them, like you said, are first-generation students or students who come from a background where maybe they haven't had technology and education at all. You know, from they come from places where, you know, they were they were in places without running water and other other kinds of things. You look at some of the learning spaces in, you know, you look at some learning spaces, especially in some of the war-torn countries. Um, you know, where we do end up having a lot of people come in, you know make their way in, but they have been in the bare, most bare bones kinds of situations for school, you know, where there's, you know, 40, 50 people in a one room space with one teacher, you know, maybe, maybe a textbook for every kid, maybe not, you know, and if they are, they're kind of there. So like coming into the virtual environment, I think, you know, Olivia was saying how we've tried to address, you know, some of the consistency of, so that the content isn't a barrier because the if the entryway is a barrier, then they never get to the content. Um, you know, and so I'm wondering like if what you saw with some of what we've done, and I think we have created that, we have continued to create that course that you're working on. So Olivia, feel free to share anything that we've done to break, you know, in the format and set up with Fiona. But how do you see what our students were doing and what they struggled with and some things that we could do differently um, from the time you were working with us? You know, like, I think maybe Olivia's made some of those changes, but I'm sure there's areas that you could tell us, have you thought about this? Um, So one thing I've seen with students who had to suddenly move into a very online space is that it was hard to maintain a level of engagement Um, when there wasn't uh, variation in modalities in terms of how the content was delivered. Um, So that's something I'm thinking about as well is um, how do we take the same things and not just provide them all in giant blocks of text? And I actually think World of Learning is a great model for this because I do think that you're working on this. Um, But I think about students who are moving from one heavy text online environment to another and how exhausting that gets 
mm-hmm. um, particularly if we think about students who maybe have learning differences or for whom English is not their first language. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a question of ability. We know that our students are very capable. Uh, it's just a question of um, how we design the spaces to allow them to have um, access and to um, be able to engage more with the critical learning concepts rather than just instructions and material. Um, And so some of that I've seen um, innovative instructors are posting not just the written instructions, but also a video of them talking about what the instructions are. and not doing one or the other, but doing both, saying, okay, well, maybe this student needs to see it written down, and this student is tired of reading and needs a break. Um, and so we allow students to engage with the material in the way that is most effective for them. Um, and, and this higher order thinking, these skills around higher order thinking, I think become really critical with the explosion in AI. Um, I'm not sure how much you're talking about it in world of learning, but higher education is a buzz with chat GPT um, and Jasper and these other platforms. And some instructors are reacting by really freaking out about how am I going to teach my material the same way? And I think the answer is that we can't teach our material the same way. We have to think about how to engage higher order learning with the tools that we have available. And so maybe that's you know, as instructors that we're jumping in with students and we're engaging in learning together and finding new ways to keep up with this breakneck of technology and use it to make our work better. You know, I'm not the only one to say this, but it's like what happened with the study of mathematics when with the arrival of the calculator. Um, And so I, I think that's a really fascinating space to be thinking about for all of us who are engaging with materials online because our students are already there. Right. That is so true, and I think um, when you when you think about us as as the educators having to shift our focus and say, I was listening to a podcast this morning, and it was talking about you know that freak out moment that some people have because you know it creates us to have to think differently about obviously how we're going to live in the world as well, and. Um, you know, we, I don't know. I just think that um, we, we can't live in fear of it. It's here. It's, it's under, it's already underpinning things. And one of the things they talked about was, was really just um, work, like, I think your suggestion about working with students together, you know, one of the things we talked about was, well, let's make it part of the assignment. You know, if you use chat GPT or if you use Google translate, identify the flaws of it, you know, if you're using this modality, like, let's think about, did it really answer the question? How many times did you have to go back and, you know, adjust your, um, your query, you know, like, did you have to use different words? What were those words that got you the right answer? Like, I think that higher order, like that really saying, yeah, yes, I'm still smarter than the machine, even though it can compute numbers faster than me. Um, you know, I'm going to pick up the read of the room when even in a virtual setting, I can see that you're smiling right now. And those things are important. You know, you can see when somebody's frowning or somebody's just like, oh, oh, I can't do it. Um, so I think, you know, we have to exert our those higher order and also those higher like emotional intelligences and like think about the human capital that 
that we need to value in terms of that and really have students say, we don't value the answer. We value how you get the answer, which is, I think, you know, when, I mean, I was one of the first generations to probably use a calculator in math class, you know, like I'm in my mid sixties and we didn't have calculators in the beginning. And when they came in, it was just like, oh, you're cheating. And it's like, I would use a calculator for everything now. It's like, it double checks me and make sure I'm right. I still have to know basics about math, but I can. You, well, you still have to know what numbers to put in and you still have to know if what, like sometimes it happens almost every time, maybe I'm a poor calculator user, but you're putting stuff in, you're not paying attention. You accidentally hit a minus and seven plus and you're like, that's not, that couldn't be the right answer. Right. Right. And being so able to say that. that. Yeah. Like that's not the right answer. I'm like knowing. Mm-hmm. No, because you, know. you can predict and know what to expect. And those are those higher order pieces too. And the thing that I think is is critically important, like I think about doing a budget and like when we sit down in our big team meetings and we're like looking at the big picture and we want to do this and we want to do that. And, you know, how do we, <laughs> I'm never the first person to get that right. You know, like I'm never the first person to be able to lay it out. And, you know, and then I turn to my colleagues who are, who are skilled mathematical thinkers, you know, they think in that term. And it's like, well, you just do this. And I'm like, got it. You know, like, well, could they turn around and tell people why what we're doing is great and why kids should be studying that we are? Probably not. But, mm-hmm. you know, so like we all have value. And I think that's, it's kind of one of the cool things about, about being an educator and helping kids to, to transverse that next spot. So Olivia and Fiona, tell me, like, think about suggestions that you have as we're kind of winding down here last five minutes or so. What are um, suggestions that as you're working with students and working to change what we're doing at the world of learning and, and you know, what you're doing for students at Arizona, um, what would be those top tips that you would give to students to go out into the workforce, to go out in the world? So this is kind of silly, but um... You know, we've been talking about all this high order thinking and, and I think this this goes back down to basics, but um, in the higher education space, when our new students are coming in, a thing that can really negatively impact an experience is a uh, lack of understanding around how to write emails. I don't know how much this is actually a part of, of high school education, but I think a lot of us in higher education, if we could turn to a high school teacher and say, here's something your student needs to know, um, it is so critical for navigating a higher education space, especially as we're moving more and more virtual. And so just knowing how to respectfully address a press professor, include your inquiry, not make your email too long, not make it too short, um, and what's the basic format of that goes a long way in opening those initial doors when you're trying to make connections in a higher education space, especially if it's virtual. If that's your first interaction with your professor, that's your that's your best foot forward, that's your handshake is your first email. Um, and you can use ChatGPT to help with it. And they write really nice emails. Um, I think we have to be careful not to perpetuate inequity by saying, okay, let's use ChatGPT or something like that as a baseline, because maybe, you know, the system's overloaded and only the premium users are able to get in. Um, 
or people who have laptops, those sorts of things. But, you know, if it is available, I think like teaching how to use it as a tool to do things like write emails, or if you're a student who has struggled more with traditional grammar um, because of your language background, being able to run what you write through it and have it update that for you, I think is a really strong tool. And I've heard it recommended even by our vice president for undergraduate education. I love that because I have a, I actually have, um, Grammarly. I'm not very good at grammar. I have Grammarly on and it, the number of things it catches for me, like I, I think that's such a great, such a great tip. Because it does make it, you know, I think, Fiona, sometimes we cringe if someone says, you know, like, oh, port email format is important and it feels like you're putting value on this formality or this app, you know, this sort of surface level thing. But the point, the way that you articulated it is that when you're looking at it through an equity lens, there are students who are going to make a strong first impression on a professor and there are students who are not. There are those who are going to get their email responded to quickly because it's clear and easy to read. And there are those who the professor is going to be unsure and archive it or dismiss it, right? And who are not going to get their email responded to. So from the perspective of student advocate, if you can help your students develop that skill, regardless of whether the skill in and of itself is particularly important, it's one that opens doors is what I'm hearing you say. Um, And the piece that I'm thinking about after today's conversation, which is also pretty concrete and manageable, which is great, right? First of all, I think with the emails, we could teach students how to do that in another language because I think a lot of the same, that would allow it to meet our content objectives, right? How to write a simple email in Spanish, but the skill is transferable. And so it could kind of leak out. That's why people say, you know, you learn a second language, it actually makes you better at your first because there's these transferable skills. They don't compete with each other, they support each other. Um, But the other little piece that I'm taking away is the idea of the auditory or video instructions, you know, and we've talked about doing that at our elementary level, having an icon that's very clear and very, you know, universally, universally recognized that elementary students can click on where they will get audio instructions. But doing that, not just at the elementary level, though, that could be a starting point, but doing it at every level. Um, and at some point using that as a teaching tool too. Like when can the audio instructions start to be in the target language or start to have elements of the target language, right? So. Um, that's one takeaway I've got for today. Yeah, it's, I mean, you, you just start this conversation and, and you can go on and on. I mean, I think Oh yeah, it's so interesting um, for me just to, I think sometimes, and I, maybe it's because we're at the world of learning, but just um, not knowing what's happening at maybe the university level. And especially since the pandemic, I feel like some of the communication has kind of fallen off you know, with everybody's just really trying to regroup and, and just keep, you know, kind of keep themselves propped up in in addition to the students and the faculty. So I think it's really good to get that perspective, you know, from the college and university and, and knowing that, you know, we're, we're going to continue to have students from a variety of backgrounds, you know, we're only becoming more diverse. Um, And I think the equity issues within communities you know, even communities that we teach, there are the people who have easy access to technology and there's those who do not. And I think the pandemic did a lot at the K-12 level for reducing some of those inequities. They're still there, but um, lots of districts who didn't have access or computers, you know, now have them. I don't know that there's any schools where 
we deal with kids who don't have um, video. So, um, so I'm reading a great book. I wonder, just as we close, I, I've been talking about this, but it's called um, The Extended Mind, and it's the power of thinking outside the brain. And I think it really, I mean, I'm just so high on this book right now. It's by Annie Murphy Paul, and she talks really about that our brains, you know, in this age are kind of maxed out. And so we have to think about where is it that we can extend our learning? And some of them are like with, you know, the computer and the internet, we can find answers to questions and stuff like that. And, you know, it talks about the the power of our physical bodies extending, you know, thinking about that we are walking beings and gesturing is another one that is is really big so i'm wondering if you guys are reading anything that's getting you as excited as this book is getting me i mean sometimes i read novels but this one's just getting really excited about what we do in the world of learning and how we can apply some of these kind of extended thinking strategies like using like teaching our teachers to use gestures Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking that question. So I am not reading a lot right now. That's not data. Um, <laughs> where I am in my dissertation, um, but I do listen to a lot of podcasts, and I have been having a fantastic time with this podcast called Work Appropriate. It's a part of the Crooked Media Empire, and it's a pretty new podcast. And what they're talking about is modern workplace problems and solutions with an equity lens. Um, and so it is talking about uh, really interesting themes, like how do you build a culture for a workplace that is remote? Um, and how do you navigate uh, joining or creating a union um, for uh, an industry that hasn't traditionally been unionized? Um, and so this is a slightly different topic, but in the beginning, I mentioned some of the work that I'm doing is workforce development um, related to students who are leaving higher education. And so I think the traditional concepts of you need to have these very specific skills to go out into the workforce and get a job don't apply anymore. Um, and so what we're really thinking about is soft skills, including how you learn new skills and an attitude of someone that an employer wants to hire and other people want to work with. Um, and so I found that just to be really um, illustrative when I'm thinking about supporting others in um, taking the next step beyond their educational journey. I can't wait to listen to that one. I was going to say, Pat's all over that. I know oh, she's I probably listening to that it. today. Hey, I before it. I share my book, which is, is a novel and just absolutely rocked my world. It's the best novel I've read in at least a year. Um, Fiona, you said before we started recording that you talked to some colleagues about things that um, students are struggling with. Have you gotten to share those, maybe sprinkle them throughout? I just want to make sure we didn't miss any nuggets of gold in there. Uh, I mean, I, I think like the thing that I was most surprised by, I, I did share, which was the, the emails and then, you know, thinking of, of my own experience, it made perfect sense. Um, but along those lines, um, it's, this is, this is, you know this as well as instructors, but there's so much good information out there and good instructions that students have to read them and they have to be willing to ask questions and make connections. Um, and that at least at the university level, the resources that we have to support students are boundless. And even at a, a state institution that is enormous, um, 
for our undergraduate students, um, the best thing that they can do if they're struggling is to reach out to their professors, their academic advisors, their graduate teaching assistants, because there are so many courseroom related and um, auxiliary services that um, they're already paying for. And right. these people are so skilled at helping students. And so you just have to be in a, it goes back to the attitude. You have to be willing to um, step out of your comfort zone and seek out that assistance because that's the make it or break it. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times some, some students who um, come in and aren't able to complete to the ones who graduate and, and move on to successful right. careers. Self-advocacy, so yeah. important. I'm so grateful that we grew up learning that. And I think that that's a gift we can give to other young people in our lives. Um, my, the book I read is called Light Pirate. Light, like the light in a room, Light Pirate. I can't remember the author. It's so beautiful. And so its theme, its theme is um, it's climate change. And somehow it's like beautiful and hopeful. Like it envisions really the end of the world as we know it. And you experience it through the characters and you go through it and it's devastating. And there's like this new life and a new way of thinking about life that kind of comes as a result of that transition that happens much quicker than people are expecting. Um, and man, it just made me like, like grateful for the life that I'm living, that I'm not experiencing that yet, you know, and I know there are people who are experiencing that. And also like just, it just brought climate change out of the news and out of um, science and like into my like imaginative world and into my like daily walking around and interacting and like, how's it going to affect, how is it affecting families and kids and, and towns and communities and not just this sort of like these abstract numbers and concepts, I think is mostly where I have dealt with it. So it's gorgeous if you, and it's very easy to read, like you will fly through it. So I love yeah. it. Well, maybe I will get another book done. That's, that, that's there you go. Distract you a little bit. Every yeah. once in a while you need a distraction every once in a while. Well, Fiona, it has been great to connect with you again. I hope that you will join us again on the podcast as you, um, you know, unwind from your research and your data, um, come back and, and talk to us again, because I'm sure that there's a lot more that we could share with our students with what you're doing. Olivia, thank you always for what you do. And we are the World of Learning Institute and our podcast is we do this every day. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and have a great day.